And I invite you to turn with me now in your Bibles uh, to the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 62. We'll read the first seven verses there. I believe that's page 1159 in your pew Bibles. 1159. Isaiah chapter 62, and we are actually concluding a series on prayer this morning. We've been uh, studying this topic for a number of weeks now, and uh, this morning we'll draw that to a conclusion, but I hope that doesn't mean that we'll stop uh, thinking about focusing on prayer and actually, actually praying. But let's uh, look at what the prophet Isaiah has to say to us this morning. Chapter 62. This is uh, the Lord speaking as it begins. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet till her righteousness shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your righteousness And all kings, your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted or or name your land desolate. But you will be called Hephzibah and your land Beulah. For the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. As a young man marries a maiden, so your sons, or so will your sons marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. I have posted watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They will never be silent, day or night. You who call on the Lord, Give yourselves no rest, and give him no rest, till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, did those words hit you like they hit me? You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest and give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. Give yourselves no rest, but more than that, give him no rest. Maybe those words hit me so hard because I've spent a lot of time in the car lately with, uh, with Lily, our little girl, little two-year-old. She sits in her car seat uh, off to my right behind me. And uh, let me give you a taste of what I live with pretty much on a daily basis. I'll be driving the van in the front seat. I'll have maybe a can of, uh, of soda, uh, diet, diet Mountain Dew. Um, so don't worry too much about me. Um, And suddenly I'll I'll hear this little voice from behind getting louder and louder and louder, da-da, dink, da-da, dink. And it's, 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 I'm I'm clarifying that for you, okay? So it sounds, it's da-da, drink, 
right? Um, it's spoken, however, not in a version of English that any of us would know. So it takes me quite a while just to figure out what she's saying. So she feels like she needs to repeat it over and over and over again. Now, I thought that I outsmarted her because I thought, well, I don't want to give her soda, but I can take a little water bottle along, and so every time she asks for a drink, I can throw her a water bottle and she can drink the water. So now, instead, what she says is, Dada can, Dada can, okay? Now, again, it's in English that I can't understand, so it takes me five minutes at least just to figure out what she's saying, and then it takes me another five minutes to respond, no, Lily, no, you can't have my can, no, you can have water, no, you can't have the can, and finally I just give up and give it to her. <laughs> now, is that what this scripture passage is teaching us? Is that what Isaiah is telling us about prayer? Pester God so incessantly, so annoyingly that he finally wears out and simply gives you whatever you're asking for. Is that what Isaiah is saying? I don't think so. But I do think that it's important for God's people to know what Isaiah is saying here. And I think he's, he's saying something about how we ought to pray I think he's telling us something about the content of those prayers, okay? And I think he's also telling us something about the impact that those prayers will have. So let's, let's begin at the beginning. Let's talk about how we ought to pray, all right? And I think we are actually being taught here that we need to pray persistently, we need to pray insistently, we need to pray determinedly, we need to pray tirelessly, to keep on repeating ourselves until God does give us the answer that we're looking for. Now, let me just back up a moment um, because that seems to contradict what I said at first and it also seems to contradict something that Jesus told us earlier. Earlier in this series, we looked at Matthew chapter 6 and what Jesus said there and he said something to this effect. He said, don't keep babbling like the pagans do thinking that they'll be heard because of their many words. Jesus says, don't do that. And it's as if Jesus is saying, look, God knows already what you want, so don't just keep repeating yourself over and over. Just say it once and be done with it. I don't think that's where Jesus is going with that. And I think when we talked about this the first, thing, the first time, what I said was that um, Jesus really is speaking more about our access to God in that place, okay? What he's saying is don't think that because of your many words or because of the eloquence of those words that that is going to give you access to God's ear. That's not how it works. Only Jesus gives us access to God. We pray in Jesus' name for that reason, right? And if you think about it, Jesus seems to encourage us elsewhere in Scripture that, you know, really we ought to repeat ourselves. We ought to pray for the same thing over and over again. For instance, in that same context, Jesus teaches us the Lord's Prayer, doesn't he? And he begins that whole text by saying, when you pray. I don't think he's saying that you ought to pray once in your life and then be done with it. 
What he's saying is, whenever you pray, pray this way. Lee kind of led us through the Lord's Prayer in our congregational prayer this morning. There's nothing wrong with that. Jesus is teaching us, you need to pray for these things again and again and again and again. Pray that my name would be hallowed. Pray that my kingdom would come. Pray for your daily bread. Pray for your forgiveness. Jesus is saying, pray the same thing over and over, right? Furthermore, Jesus goes on and he says things like this, ask and it will be given to you. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Now, I heard somebody talk about that last line, knock and the door will be opened to you. And what they said is, how many times do you knock just once? You don't, right? What happens if you knock just once? What happens with the person inside? I know what happens with me. If you were to pound on my door like that, I would think a book fell in the next room, right? Or the dog fell off the couch like he has a habit of doing. Boom! What happened? You don't knock like that. You knock repeatedly, right? And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, knock again and again and again. Repeat those prayers. Keep going back to God. Be persistent in prayer. This is how Jesus is telling us to pray. Be persistent. But there's more. We're not just talking about how we ought to pray or that we ought to pray all of those prayers, all of our prayers with persistence because, friends, honestly, there are some prayers that we shouldn't pray with persistence, but we do, right? There are sometimes we have inordinate desires where we want something and we think, I need this, I need this for my well-being, I need this for me, and God's saying, no, you don't. Those are not the kinds of things that Jesus says you ought to keep praying for and praying for and praying for. No. We are guided in the things that we ought to be praying for, right? Let's think about the Lord's Prayer again. How does it begin? Our Father. It doesn't begin Father. It begins, our Father. Our Father. Now, Jesus is teaching us here something about corporate prayer. Okay? He's teaching us something about corporate prayer. We pray as a community. We pray as the church. Even when we pray as individuals, we have to recognize that we are part of a church, part of the covenant community of God, and our prayers are a part of those church or those prayers that rise out of this community. Even our individual prayers are a part of a communal prayer. Jesus is teaching us here that when we pray, we need to recognize that we are a part of God's family. Okay? We're a part of God's family. We are children. And what that means is we have other siblings. I am not, and you are not an only child. And we do not pray like only children, okay? We pray as a community, as a family. But building on that, not only are we unified in the fact that we are God's children, but we are also unified in our knowledge of our God, right? He is our Father in heaven. 
We know this Father. He is our Father in heaven. And what that means is He is a God of authority, right? He stands above all kings and all governors and all governments. In other words, we are united in recognizing our allegiance to the God who stands above all earthly authorities. And so when we gather together to pray, right, we don't pray out of allegiance to our earthly authorities and their desires. We pray out of allegiance to our God who is above all earthly powers. He is the God of heaven. And we share this knowledge as a community. And so when we gather together, we affirm this God and we affirm His desires. And what that does is it unifies us also in the will of God, right? We understand and examine and consider God's will together. And what that means is we are unified then in the themes of our prayers, in the themes of our prayers. You see, when we actually engage in prayer with other believers, we check ourselves, right? When I'm praying in a group, when I'm praying with all of you, I can't just pray my individual desires. I've got to pray the desires of who? Of God. Because those desires, I know, will also be your desires. We pray as a community and we pray together the will of God. My own desires are often limited and off target, and so we check each other and we bring each other into line. We refine each other. We teach each other the kinds of things we ought to actually be praying for together. Some time ago in the Milwaukee Journal, there was a, an article describing um, a situation that took place in the city. I think it was a, a shooting in the city, and there was a, a crime report that was put out as a result of that crime. And what they noted was that there were a number of witnesses to that event, but none of their stories really corroborated. But I shouldn't say that because the main details were there. Okay? They saw the same event, but so many details were off. For instance, one person heard this many shots, another person heard that many shots. One person said this person instigated it, another person said that person instigated it. And what you begin to understand is that our individual memories are really not all that reliable. Our corporate memories are actually more reliable. When two or three witnesses can get together and sit together in a room and say, what did you see? What do you remember? And all of a sudden, we begin to paste a picture together that makes sense. And friends, it's, it's very similar when we get together to pray. Okay? You see things that I'm blind to. I see things, perhaps, that you are blind to. You refine my memory, my understanding. You expand my understanding. Hopefully, I do the same thing for you. What I'm trying to get at is the fact that we are called to pray persistently and insistently, yes, but we are called to pray that God's will would be done. And we understand God's will better as a corporate body, better as a community. 
Look at a few of the examples that we have in Scripture of this kind of insistent and persistent prayer. Let's think about Abraham in Genesis 18. Okay, remember what he does there? God shares with Abraham the fact that he is going to destroy a couple of cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. What does Abraham do? How does he respond? Do you remember? Does he say, okay, God, go ahead. You do your thing. That's what you do, right? No. That's not what Abraham does at all. Rather, he pleads, he prays for Sodom and Gomorrah. He prays that God will not destroy them. And he prays not just once, but he prays over and over and over again. God, if there are 50 righteous people, will you destroy this city? No. God, if there are 45 righteous people, will you destroy these cities? No. Well, God, what if there are 40? What if there are 35? What if there are 30? On and on and on, Abraham prays over and over and over. He repeats himself. He prays insistently, persistently. He refuses to give up. He wears himself out. Does he wear God out? Why does Abraham do that? Well, what's the context here? The context is the covenant, right? God has just made a covenant with Abraham. And in that covenant, God said, Abraham, I will bless you, but also, Abraham, I will make you a blessing to all the other nations of the world, to all the peoples of the world. And this is Abraham's first chance to try out his new role. Okay, Abraham, I'm about to destroy some of these peoples of the world around you. What do you have to say? And what does Abraham say? Don't do it, Lord. I have to intercede for those peoples. I have to be a blessing to those peoples. Abraham pleads for God not to do it. But what he's doing is he is praying exactly what God asks him to pray, what God told him to pray. He prays the covenant, right? He didn't get this idea out of thin air. God gave it to him. God said, Abraham, this is your role. You are now to be a priest to the nations. You're to intercede for the nations. You're going to be a forerunner to Jesus Christ himself. God gave him the idea. The words of Martin Lloyd-Jones Abraham pleads God's own promises. He repeats back to God exactly what God said to him. He prays God's echo. And that's what these kinds of prayers are all about. When we know the will of God, when we're sure of what God wants us to pray, we pray these prayers over and over and over again. How can we be sure? They're the very words of God. Think again of Isaiah chapter 62, the text that we read. Zion, Jerusalem, the city of God, it's been ravaged by Babylon. The people have been taken out to a foreign land. The city's been trampled, its walls torn down. Even after the people return, the place is still in ruins. There's no splendor, there's no beauty to the place whatsoever. Now, Zion is not just a physical city in the Old Testament, is it? It's a symbol of for the very people of God, for all of God's people. Again, think of the covenant, okay? God's people, 
not just Abraham, but Abraham, his descendants, all of God's people would be blessed so that they could be a blessing. God's people would shine. They would radiate the splendor of God, the splendor of His presence to the rest of the world. But here in our text, we find a Jerusalem, a Zion, with no beauty or majesty to attract us to it whatsoever. But look what verse 1 says. God is making a promise. For Zion's sake, I will keep silent, and you can add there, no longer. So God has been silent for a time. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet until her righteousness shines like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. Now, you get to verse 6. What are those who call on the Lord supposed to give the Lord no rest about? They're supposed to give Him no rest about the very things He has promised, right? Give Him no rest until He establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. Do what you said, Lord. Do what you said. Keep your promise. And we're going to keep praying and keep praying and keep praying until you do. Until He makes her the praise of the earth. Now, that prayer at first can sound kind of selfish, right? Make Jerusalem, make Zion beautiful, especially if you live in Zion or you live in Jerusalem. But Jerusalem's glory in the context of the covenant was never for her own benefit, was it? It was never for her benefit alone. The end target was always beyond Zion, beyond herself. It was always the other nations of the world. In seeing Jerusalem's beauty, the world would see the beauty of God. They would see His reality, His presence in the world. They would see His reign. They would see His kingdom. And they would develop a desire to be a part of that kingdom themselves. This is ultimately, right here in Isaiah 62, it's a prayer for God's kingdom to come. And this is the prayer we should be praying over and over and over again. Isaiah says it. Jesus says it. This is the prayer that we should be wearing ourselves out with and wearing God out with. Do you? We've got a prayer group that's going to take place Thursday night. It's going to be on Zoom, maybe a little awkward, but it's a prayer group. It's a gathering of the people here. We actually have another prayer group that's sort of working to get off the ground. It's probably going to be a morning prayer group. There are three women in the congregation right now who are trying to get this thing going, okay? We are the, the body of believers. How often are we going to assemble together and lift up our corporate prayers that God would bring in His kingdom, that He would be faithful to His promises that He has made to us and to the world through us. How often do we do that? It's, it's actually kind of a foreign thing to us as North Americans, folks. We pray in our homes. We pray individually. There's so much that comes with praying corporately. 
Let me give you one more example of these kinds of prayers in Scripture. Think about Jesus' story about the widow and the unjust judge in Luke 18. What's the preface to that story? Jesus begins that by saying, Jesus told his disciples this parable to show them how they should always pray and never give up, how they should just keep praying and keep praying. Now, that's not just a story about a judge and a widow and their interaction, right? When you read that story, you have to understand that that widow is sort of a mascot for the kingdom of God. She's a mascot for the kingdom of God. Throughout the Old Testament, the widows, um, the orphans, the poor, they're examples of people who are totally dependent upon God for life. They cannot exist on their own. They depend on their God. They have no power in the world. They have no influence. They have no recourse. And so they're sort of stock figures in the Old Testament for those people who depend on the mercy of others to survive and therefore they depend on the mercies of God. And therefore, throughout the Old Testament, what God is saying is, look, you can identify my kingdom, you can see my kingdom whenever you see the widows treated justly. If you see that, you see my kingdom. So here in Luke 18, Jesus is teaching us about prayer. He's teaching us how to keep praying. And he uses a widow praying for justice. And she prays over and over and over again. Why? Because that's what we're supposed to do. She's not just praying for justice for herself. She's praying for justice for all the widows. She's praying for, her king, for God's kingdom to come. She's praying the very heart of God. That's what this kind of prayer is about. We plead God's own promises. We plead His covenant. We pray for His kingdom. We pray God's echo. Now, is that off-putting to God? Are we trying to annoy Him? No, no. But think about something we've said throughout this series, right? We've talked about prayer in a family context. Jesus keeps teaching us that when we pray, we pray as children to our Father. How many parents are actually annoyed when their children repeat their words? I mean, I've had it done to me, right? Dad, put your phone away. Don't text at the table. <clears throat> okay? Where did they hear that? They heard it from me. Was I offended by that? No, I was a little stunned, actually. Stunned that they were actually listening, but then pleased that they were actually listening. And they took something to heart. That's how God feels. He's not offended or annoyed when we pray His words, His promises back to Him. He's blessed by that. Hey, they listened. They took it to heart. They actually care about what I say. God is pleased when we press Him on His promises, when we press Him on His covenant. But now I want to ask the question, what's the impact of these kinds of prayers? What kind of impact do these prayers have? Do we actually wear God out? I mean, can we say da-da drink 
so often that he actually gives in just to make us stop? I don't think so. Neither do you. I mean, God says that he is like human fathers in many ways, but he is also so far beyond us, isn't he? So why then pray like this? Why pray like this? Why keep on repeating ourselves? Why keep repeating his promises? Well, for one, I think it has impact on us. It changes us. It doesn't change God. But as we pray these prayers over and over and over again, we have them etched on our hearts. We are carving them into our hearts and minds, the very will and promises of God to the point that they become natural for us to pray. And they are things that we look for and work for and praise God when we see the results of. They also really change things. God answers these kinds of prayers. Sometimes we have to look for them. You know, there's one more thing, faith. At the end of that parable in Luke 18, when Jesus says, you know, pray, pray, and pray, um, then he ends in the strangest of ways. He says, but when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find faith? I think what he's talking about there is a faith to keep on praying. Will he find faith that actually trusts God and trusts his promises? Will he find faith, the faith that believes God really is bringing in his kingdom, that he really will do this? Those kinds of prayers are hard to pray all alone. They're hard to pray all alone. They wear you out. You get tired, you give up. I know I do. Maybe that's why when Jesus told that parable, he, he told it to his disciples, plural, teaching them how they should pray. Not alone. This is how all of you should pray. And when he concludes that parable, he says, you know, will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones? who cry out to him day and night. Again, it's a plural prayer, a plural crying out. We need each other to pray these types of prayers because these types of prayers take faith. You know, Nick and Allison, think about baptism. You guys are probably going to pray persistently, repeatedly for your children. Many of us do. We pray again and again and again. But sometimes I need help. Sometimes you will need help. Sometimes I can't pray for my children. The realities of what's going on in their lives is just too much, and I need you to pray for them. That's one of the promises we made here this morning. We'll pray for each other. We'll pray as a community. We'll pray and pray and pray and pray. And as we do that, our understanding, even of baptism, right, it, it, it changes, it expands, doesn't it? 
When we pray for our children, we're praying for God to keep His covenant to us as individuals, as families. We're not just praying that God will save my children, are we? We're praying that all of His covenant promises would come into play in that child's life. All of them. When I pray for my child, and then I pray with you, I have to pray for your child too, don't I? And when we gather together and pray for our children, we begin to see that the covenant is not just for us, but it calls us to pray for the children of our neighbors and the children of their neighbors and the children across the world, the children in Haiti and Uganda and Mozambique. And it goes on and on and on, doesn't it? Our world is expanded. Our prayers are expanded. There was a interesting podcast I was able to listen to this week. Um, <clears throat> it was an interview with Emmanuel Acho, who some of you may know as a former NFL player. But Emmanuel Acho was actually born in Nigeria, and his family immigrated to the United States. They lived in Texas. He lived a very sheltered life there, okay? Um, someone asked, the interviewer asked her, did you, have a, did you have a curfew? And he said, why would you have a curfew when you were never allowed out? That's the kind of life that, that he lived. Um, <clears throat> but when it got to college, okay, he went to the University of Texas. All of a sudden, big, big, big world. And um, one of the things he said that, that kept him on task was that uh, his brother went there before him. They were very strong Christians. And the interviewer asked him, and she said, you know, did your brother keep you in line? Did he watch out for you? And, and this was his answer. I, f I found it startling. He said, he watched after me with more than words. He looked after me with his actions. He looked after me with his actions. And what he meant by that was, he said, he set a very high bar for me. He won the academic Heisman. He was a double major at Macomb's School of Business. He had a 3.66 GPA. He was drafted in the fourth round of the NFL. He said, he said, he set the bar so high for me that if I came anywhere close to that bar, I would be in good territory. He set an example for me, right? He cared enough for me to set an example for me. And that's the story of baptism, isn't it? That's the story of the covenant community. That's the pledge that we made to each other. That I will, I will care for you with my words, but not just with my words, with my example. And friends, when we pray as a community together and we pray the promises of God, the promises of baptism, those are the things we begin to see, right? And those are the things we begin to pray for. God, create in this place or create a place such that within it, all of us are examples for one another. We care for each other, not just by word, but by example. That's the kind of impact these prayers have. One, one final story about the impact of these kinds of prayers, and then we'll be done. There was an editorial in The Voice of the Martyrs recently. It spoke of the situation of Christians in China. 
Now, we all know that religion is discouraged in China, right? It has been for a long time. You do the wrong thing, they put you in prison. Well, did you know that in the last few years, they've been installing surveillance cameras throughout China? Okay, we have traffic cameras, right? For a long time, or for the last couple of years, they've been installing surveillance cameras. They now have over 580 million surveillance cameras in the country. That's one camera for every two people. For every two people. In other words, they know exactly what you are doing. They're constantly watching you. They see if you're carrying a Bible. They see if you go to another Christian's home. They see if you go to a place of worship. They can listen to you in your homes. They understand what you're doing, what you're saying, that you might be praying with your children before they go to bed, or you pray before a meal, or you open the Bible and read it. There's no place you can go where they don't see you. Now, here's the question. If you were to pray for your fellow believers in China, if you were to advise them, let's say, if you were to advise them how they should live, what they should do with that knowledge that they're being watched constantly, what would you tell them? Would you say, well, um, make sure that you don't go to church or um, make sure that you don't gather together as, as believers, um, make sure that you don't visit other Christians' homes and when you're in the house, you know, don't, don't pray for your children. Um, what would you say? Here's what, uh, what one Christian leader recently told his congregation. He said, of course the government is watching you and even listening to you in your own home. So make sure that what they are seeing is a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Did you hear that? He didn't tell them to hide. He said, they're going to be watching, so live more faithfully. Live more beautifully. Show those who are watching the real beauty of Zion. Now, why would he say that? He would say that because he has a kingdom perspective, a different point of view. And what he's saying is, we're not the ones in danger, folks. If we listen to God's word and what our God has told us, we'll realize we're not the ones in danger. The people in danger are the ones who are watching us because they don't know that when they see the full beauty of Zion, when they see people where God is present, where His glory shines, they don't know, but they are in the danger of God pulling them out of their lifeless, colorless, bland world and into the church of Jesus Christ. That's what happens. That's the message of the kingdom. That's the message of the covenant. In fact, and friends, when we pray these prayers, these are the things that we begin to see. These are our older brothers leading the way at the university, setting the bars so high for us that if we follow it, we can't go wrong. 
Our God calls us to pray. So keep praying. Over and over and over and over again. Dada. Kingdom. Dada. Kingdom. Amen. Lord God, we lift up to you prayers you have taught us to pray. We pray them repeatedly because we have confidence they are what you have instructed us to pray for. And we have faith that you will answer our prayers. You will make Zion beautiful, filled with your glory, and through that you will change the world. Increase our faith by the power of your Holy Spirit. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, may we pray insistently and persistently. In Jesus' name, amen.